Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. You're listening to the series Diversity in Early Christianity. In this particular episode, I use the case of Asia Minor and I do a quick survey of some of the forms or strands of Christianity that we see evident in the literature from Asia Minor as a springboard into the diversity of early Christianity in subsequent centuries and in other regions of the Roman Empire. And so today I briefly outline, for example, what I call Judaizing forms of Christianity, despite the fact that all Christianity is Jewish in some way. There were certain groups of followers of Jesus that were considered too Jewish by some other Gentile groups that were forming, and we'll get into that today. I'll also outline other strands of Christianity, including what is known as Docetism, also practices associated with asceticism, and prophetic movements within Asia Minor. All of this is just a quick overall survey of this one region, Turkey, Asia Minor, in order to give a bit of a basis, a knowledge basis, on which to move on to the diversity of Christian groups in terms of practice and belief in the 2nd and 3rd centuries as reflected in the Apocrypha, in the Nag Hammadi documents or Gnostic writings as they're called, and in some of the church fathers and patristic authors who attack certain forms of Christianity. So this particular episode gives you some of the groundwork and some of the terminology that will help you as you move forward into some of the literature from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. I also briefly outlined what our approach to those writings of the 2nd and 3rd century will be. And I go through some of the main questions we can ask regarding the worldviews, the beliefs, and regarding the practices as reflected in particular Christian writings, and what these can tell us about the beliefs and practices of particular Christian groups and how they're relating to other Christian groups. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and feel free to browse my website at philipharland.com. Last term, we focused in on Asia Minor in the first two centuries, especially up to 150 CE. And we asked the question of what types of Christianity do we see existing in this one particular region? Part of the reason we did that was we learned from Walter Bauer that it's useful to distinguish between regional questions when you're trying to get at the question of what was Christianity like. You can't assume that Christianity is the same everywhere. And so we used Asia Minor as a case study to get at this issue of not only is Christianity diverse, but even when you zoom in to a region, you start to see just how diverse it is and just how difficult it is to describe what Christianity is. It's a lot of things. What's in common about all the different types of Christianity is they all believe they're following Jesus. That's what allows us as scholars to call it Christianity. They all think they're following Jesus. But what we saw is they had different understandings of what it meant to follow Jesus. And that could be different understandings of what you need to believe in order to follow Jesus. And different understandings of what you need to practice. How your life should be lived in order to follow Jesus. And so our time spent looking at different documents from Asia Minor was all about trying to get at some of those forms of Christianity, some of those beliefs and practices that were going on in different places, and seeing how different beliefs and practices related to one another. 
and how different Christians were arguing with one another and disagreeing with one another. Let's remind ourselves of some of the types or strands of Christianity we found when we zoomed in on Asia Minor, some of which are useful to keep in your mind as we now continue on to look in the second and third century using the Nagamati documents, the Apocrypha, and the anti-heresy writers. First of all, we had a whole section last term to discuss what I loosely called Jewish or Judaizing strands. Now we loosely called it that because it's problematic. All early Christianity, we learned, is a form of Judaism. So you can't help but have Jewish Christianity because that's all there is. Christianity is a form, a sect of Judaism in its origins. Nonetheless, as Christianity starts to make its way into less Judean circles and starts to incorporate more and more Greeks and Romans, more and more what Judeans call Gentiles, there begins to be a development of different forms of Christianity depending on where you are. And that Gentile element starts to affect how Christianity is practiced such that gradually you can have certain groups following Jesus who will be considered too Jewish by another group. And that's what we meant by Judaizing forms of Christianity. So in Galatia, we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we saw Paul attacking opponents who were advocating circumcision among Gentiles. So Paul was all about having Gentiles join this Judean movement, and he wanted to do it without requiring circumcision. When he left Galatia, others came through who were followers of Jesus, Judeans most likely, who came through and said, why are you Gentiles not circumcised in order to symbolize belonging to God's people? And so they advocated, of course you need to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. How could you not have a Jewish movement that symbolically shows they're God's people by being having everyone circumcised, having every male circumcised? And so that was their rationale. Paul had a Judean form of Christianity that said Gentiles do not, not need to be circumcised in order to belong to, to the Jesus movement. But what we are seeing there is what you can loosely call Jewish forms of Christianity, keeping in mind that all forms of Christianity are Jewish in the 50 CE. We're in the mid-first century there with Paul. Move on to Ignatius. We encountered in the early 2nd century, 110 CE, Ignatius writing letters to Christians living in various cities in Asia Minor. When he's writing to these different cities in Asia Minor, he had a couple of problems he thought. He heard about other followers of Jesus there who thought things and did things differently than what Ignatius thought should be done. So Ignatius represents a certain form of Christianity, maybe just him, but nonetheless a type of Christianity. There were other Christians in Smyrna and Ephesus and those other cities he's writing to that had different views on things. Some of them were another example of what we're loosely calling Judaizing forms of Christianity. Remember that Ignatius was upset about what he called Gentiles following Judaism. And he had that whole convoluted argument that Christianity came first, Judaism came later. The point, though, he had was that he felt certain followers of Jesus in Asia Minor were engaging in a form of Christianity that involved Judean practices to a degree that he was not feeling comfortable about it. So he was upset about followers of Jesus meeting primarily on the Sabbath. But that's the standard day to meet for a Judean movement. It seems by 110 CE, Ignatius and some others are starting to suggest that Sunday instead of Saturday is the day to meet. And so they're worshiping God, meeting together to remember Jesus. Some are doing that on Saturday and some are doing it on Sunday. So there's different forms of Christianity for you, just in terms of when they meet. 
they're obviously not all meeting together, are they? And so that gave us a glimpse into the diversity and to the fact that there are Judean strands of Christianity, forms of Christianity that to Ignatius were too Jewish. He also argued with some people about their use of the Jewish scriptures. Some Jesus followers in Asia Minor were interpreting the Jewish scriptures in a way that Ignatius disagreed with. And he characterized that as practicing Judaism as well. So Jewish and Judaizing strands. We also saw what we called loosely docetic strands. We read John's epistles, which most scholars associate with Asia Minor. With the Joannine epistles, most scholars agree that it represents what scholars actually call Joannine Christianity to some degree. Like scholars have this category, Johannine Christianity. So it's a type of Christianity. But on top of that, within that type of Christianity, we found a schism. And it was a schism over how to view Jesus' humanness, how to view Jesus' flesh, how to view Jesus as a human being with flesh. And there are debates within the Joannine type of Christianity in Asia Minor. To what degree do we emphasize that Jesus is fleshly? And to what degree do we emphasize that Jesus is the word of John's gospel? The pre-existent, very high Christology that comes across in the preface to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God in creation. That whole thing. And a schism developed. So the opponents of John's epistles were all about that schism. And the opponents left and started their own group. And the author, John the Elder, who wrote those epistles, is very upset with them. He's not interested anymore in trying to get back together with them. He calls them antichrists. The people who left had more of an emphasis on Jesus as the word. Jesus as more of the divine being, it seems. When we got to Ignatius's epistles that we've just been talking about, 110 CE, we got a further glimpse of something that compared to what we saw in the Joannine epistles and that provides us with what you could loosely call a precursor to Gnosticism, a precursor to some of the elements that become part of what we see in the Nag Hammadi documents in terms of how they view Jesus. Remember those opponents of Ignatius who said that it was only seemed that Jesus was human? The word dokeo, Greek word dokeo, is to seem. So we get the word docetism from that. In other words, followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, alongside the other followers of Jesus we've just been talking about, who believe that Jesus only appeared to be human, he never was really human. He only appeared to suffer, he never really did suffer. He only appeared to have a human flesh, he never really had it. Jesus is more of a divine being, what we call a higher Christology. Low Christology, a more human Jesus. High Christology, a more divine Jesus. Those categories do not exist in the first century. However, scholars have them in order to help make sense of these different ways of looking at Jesus. And they give us glimpses into different forms of Christianity, different beliefs about Jesus. And it seems that the docetic element we saw in the Joannine epistles and that we see further in Asia Minor in Ignatius's epistles give you a sense of a direction that heads towards what you see culminating in the Nag Hammadi documents. That there's an affinity, is what I'm saying, between docetism and the type of view of Jesus we'll see in the Nag Hammadi documents. The Nag Hammadi documents downplay Jesus as a human. They think Jesus is an emanation from the one perfect principle. That's divine. The Nag Hammadi documents have a docetic view that de-emphasizes humanity of Jesus. So your knowledge of Ignatius' opponents and your knowledge of John's opponents will help you understand the Nag Hammadi documents though we can't just simply group them all together as the same type of Christianity nonetheless. They have affinities with one another, though. 
We also saw in our discussion of documents in Asia Minor last term in the first and early second century, ascetic strands. Now these things are not exclusive from one another. It's not necessarily the case that you're either docetic or you're ascetic, is it? We're talking about strands, possibilities and practices and beliefs that can be configured together in different ways, forming different forms of Christianity. And so in uh, Colossians, at Colossae, we saw an author condemning a type of Christianity that he calls a philosophy. The people who follow the philosophy, as he labels it, are concerned about ascetic practices, refraining from foods. They're also concerned about divine beings. They were concerned about soliciting the support of different angelic and divine beings, most likely, to protect them from negative beings. And they felt that it was important to engage in ascetic practices as part of that. That was the theory we put forward to explain the opponents of the letter to the Colossians. The pastoral epistles condemns the Acts of Paul and Thecla's stance, doesn't it? Acts of Paul and Thecla, we found, represented a form of Christianity in Asia Minor, who first of all had a place for women in leadership, but who also said that the last thing you want to do if you want salvation is be married. What you want to do for salvation is be celibate. And then we saw that represented as though it was Paul's opinion. Then we read the pastoral epistles, proposing themselves to be Paul, writing to Christians in Asia Minor. And what do they condemn? Well, they condemn things to do with women's leadership. We know that. But they also condemn asceticism. They condemn forms of Christianity, followers of Jesus, who say you need to refrain from certain foods and that you need to refrain from sex in order to follow Jesus properly. Axopol and Thecla says, in order to follow Jesus properly, you need to refrain from sex. Pastoral Epistles claims that in order to follow Jesus and in order to follow Paul, you need to not be ascetic. Different forms of Christianity, in that case, actually battling it out in the same region. We'll start to see more examples of asceticism coming into it, that it's somewhat natural outcome of the worldview of the, many of the Nag Hammadi documents to be ascetic, to refrain from sexual activity. We'll see that soon enough. We also, in our discussion of literature from Asia Minor, generally talked about prophetic strands. And once again, this was not to say that none of the other types of Christianity were prophetic. That's not what we were emphasizing. But what we were saying was there were certain types of Christianity in Asia Minor that emphasized prophecy to a degree that other followers of Jesus were uncomfortable with it. The Montanus movement was an example of that. Priscilla and Maximilla and Montanus were all prophets who felt that God was talking directly through them and through this prophecy suggesting that the end was near. Imminent apocalypticism combined with very strong prophetic emphasis and perhaps a downplaying of other sources of authority. And this was upsetting to other followers of Jesus, like some of the bishops who attacked it. And we read portions of Eusebius to see that, to see the anti-heresy writers condemning Montanism, partly because of the authority issue. There was debates about bishops being the authority versus prophets being the authority. And that types of Christianity can formulate around these issues in Asia Minor. So with these Jewish and Judaizing strands, these docetic strands we've seen, the ascetic strands we've seen, and the prophetic strands, we're in a good position now, I think, now that we're heading into even more complicated literature, to have a firm basis on which to start to assess of what types of Christianity we're seeing in these different documents. Our method is going to be focusing on particular things. We're going to be asking these sorts of questions. 
first of all, about what type of writing it is so that we can make use of the material we encounter there, what time it's from so that we can make use of it carefully and understand what we're seeing reflected there. But mainly the second question of what forms of Christian belief and practice do we encounter there? What beliefs or what worldview do we see reflected in the writing we're reading for a particular week? This can include things like what are the perspectives on things like God, Jesus, human beings, the world we inhabit, the world God inhabits, the roles and natures of other spiritual or angelic beings? How does the author imagine the history of God's relations with this created world and human beings? What conditions, problems, or dilemmas do human beings face in the past, in the present, or in the future? In other words, through reading this author, try your best to get into the mind of each of the authors to say what do they think are the problems humans face and how do they see the solution to the problems. Just to give you an example, traditionally within the type of Christianity that became predominant, sin became the prominent way of expressing the human problem. But as we know from last uh, term's discussion, and what you'll learn even more now, is not all followers of Jesus believed sin was the principal problem of humanity. So what I'm pointing out to you is don't assume things about what Christians think. You've got to always be asking these questions afresh. So what conditions, problems, or dilemmas do human beings face in the past, in the present, and the future? What is the solution to such dilemmas? In other words, what's salvation? Not every follower of Jesus agrees on this, and it helps us to discern different forms of Christianity by asking that. What does this Christian author think salvation is? To give you another example, you might say, well, early Christianity is about salvation is through Jesus dying on the cross for sins. I've just explained to you, some followers of Jesus aren't interested in sin as a principal aspect of salvation. Not only that, but some followers of Jesus aren't even interested in the death of Jesus. The Nag Hammadi documents, many of them, have a disinterest in the death of Jesus. It's neither here nor there for them in terms of the importance of salvation. How would the author define being saved and what does this entail for humans and for spiritual beings? In other words, how are humans saved and what are the roles of humans, God, Jesus, or other spiritual beings in the process? What is the relationship between this worldview and the daily life and practices of the author or community? Can we get into that? Sometimes we can. The second main thing we're looking out for beyond beliefs and worldview when we're reading each of these documents this term is practice and ritual. Unfortunately for us, rarely do we get this, but sometimes we do. In other words, we get a whole lot about their worldview. We get a whole lot of an avenue into what they think about the world, but very little about their actual social groups they belong to and what practices they engage in and what rituals they engage in in relation to God. But here are some questions to keep in mind. Are there any indications of rituals or practices that the author or the community he or she belongs to engages in and what priorities are placed on certain practices? How do attitudes or beliefs regarding the world and humanity's place in it relate to the daily life and practices of the author or community? So these are the things we want to ask, and this will give you a bit of a guide as you work through the literature. And on top of that, we're asking the main comparative question. If we do this with each of these writings we're looking at, we'll be able to begin to do our best to compare and start to see affinities between different Christian authors. And that's the case with the Nag Hammadi documents as an example, where we can see a type in a broad sense of Christianity 
that you can say something general about, and yet there's all kinds of diversity within it and different forms of Christianity within the Nag Hammadi documents. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>